0: What's up everybody. Welcome
1: back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 160. And today we are looking at the case of Robert Juan, which is an unsolved murder that is honestly going to blow your mind.
0: Yeah, it's really crazy. It
1: is. And I don't know if I was just living in a bubble, but I had no idea about this case. I know a couple other podcasts and shows have covered it, but I had never heard of this. And this is a major injustice. And just an overall mind blowing case. Like, really, the details of this one are pretty intense. So, we definitely wanted to give you guys a bit of a warning. This case is a little bit darker than what we'll normally cover on Mile Higher, normally leave most of that for lights out. But um, this one, this one is really important. More people need to hear about Robert's story, yeah. especially because Robert was an incredible person.
0: Yeah. It's just an absolutely exceptional human mm-hmm. being you know that absolutely didn't deserve what happened to him so right. it's one of those cases that's just going to kind of feel make you leave you feeling angry at the yeah. end and, and totally. disbelief of how this all turned out because it really is mm-hmm. upsetting it is to hear about what happened to him and the fact that you know the person that did this to him yeah. is out there you know or person not yeah exactly so
1: we just have no idea
0: it's a it's a crazy one there's still like a lot of Things that are unknown, really, about you know some of the events that mm-hmm. happened, you know, leading up to this, and obviously what happened to him. So, yep, yeah, it's a definitely a very interesting one.
1: Yeah, lots to get into. So we're gonna go straight into it. But first of all, thanks to our sponsors for today: Pretty Litter, HelloFresh, Stamps, Upstart, and Weed Tube, which we are really very excited exciting. to have them as a sponsor check out WeedTube, you guys. There'll be a link below. Check out all our sponsors. There's links below for them, of course.
0: And also, we do still have some 420 merch left over. Right. Uh, we did restock some of the accessories. So mm-hmm. there's tumblers, there's grinders, there's uh, mood mats, which are really cool, Yes. Uh, you know, that you can put your glass pipes on.
1: Yeah, basically, pretend this is a, a gong, as I say on the sesh. <laughs> it like well there's it's there's not one here right now but you know it keeps them from breaking when you set them down because sometimes you can set them down a little aggressively me i'm the worst i've broken so much glass over the years that's true so it's it's basically a coaster for your gong
0: yeah or you could use it to you know yeah whatever concentrate user you know
1: that's just how i personally use it
0: yeah so check it out uh com, and yeah we still have some stuff up there uh some cool apparel on there as well so check it out but let's go ahead and just get right into this case because we got a lot to cover so let's begin with you know going over some of the background information regarding robert and really talk about who he was as a person and Mm -hmm. kind of you know his you know life story really
1: so robert eric juan was born on june 1st 1974 and he grew up in a townhouse in brooklyn with his parents william and amy and his younger brother andrew Robert's family emigrated from China to New York in the 1930s, and he was a fourth generation Chinese American. His dad was a technology executive for a bank, and his mom was a librarian. Robert was a very determined kid, both in athletics and also in school. He was one of the smallest players on his baseball team, but he still tried harder than anyone else on the team, and he was known to be an excellent student. Growing up, his favorite team was the Mets and his whole family would go to games together. This is something they really bonded over and have, you know, a lot of great memories from.
0: Yeah. Huge love for baseball, too. Mm I mean, it's the all-American game, right? So it makes sense.
1: Robert went to a private Catholic school and he did very well there. He was passionate about politics from a young age. And when he was 15, he actually volunteered for a campaign for Chuck Schumer, who was running for re-election in the House. And he was actually knocking on doors, going around, you know, in his neighborhood. And Robert happened to answer the door. And he was so excited that he volunteered on the spot and just joined him walking around. A few years later, he spent the summer working for New York Governor Mario Cuomo. Robert was also accepted into the prestigious Monroe Scholar Program at the College of William and Mary. In college, Robert had a really close-knit group of friends. People were naturally drawn to him. He just had this energy about him that was very friendly And he took his future very seriously in school as well. And his ambition and drive were just contagious to everyone around him. Robert was known for being fun to be around because he was interesting, he was funny, and he was deeply caring to all of his friends. Robert was the kind of person that would keep track of everyone's birthdays that he knew. And he would make sure to send them a card on their birthday, even if they weren't that close. And not only that, he would put change into expired parking meters to make sure that they didn't run out of time and someone would get ticketed, you know? And these are just strangers to him. So that really shows you what kind of guy Robert was.
0: And it feels like there's just not that many people like that out there in the world these days. No. That are like literally going around and if you see somebody else's parking meter like about to expire and like, oh, I don't want them to get a ticket. Here's, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna refill for them.
1: It's not even like anyone you know. Yeah. you know, Just to do That's really cool. Yeah, that is very rare. He also loved his school and he was very proud to be there. And when the campus renovation fund ran out of money, Robert actually volunteered to lay down new sod in the quad himself, and he got a group of friends together to clean this favorite sculpture that he had on campus.
0: And when he found out that the former president of William & Mary lived alone and had crippling spinal arthritis, he started bringing a group of students to his house every week to see how he could help. He also revived a secret society on campus called the 13 Club, which was dedicated to doing random acts of kindness and the friends who joined the 13 Club became lifelong friends, and they actually all stayed in touch even after college. Robert helped these friends during the most difficult times in their life. He comforted his friend Jonas after a devastating divorce. He called his friend Tara to brighten her days while she was struggling to get through law school while pregnant. Robert went to the University of Pennsylvania for law school after he graduated with his undergrad. He had big plans for his future and becoming a successful lawyer. He was also very generous with his time and committed to serving the community he was a leader in the asian pacific bar association and he volunteered legal services for the organization of chinese americans the museum of chinese in america the latin american youth center and the academy of construction and design at cardozo senior high school but then in january 2002 he met katherine ellen Yu at a conference in philadelphia Catherine also had a law degree and was working for the american bar association Her boss told her to email Robert Wan to invite him to be a panelist at the conference. And right away, Kathy liked Robert quite a bit, even before they met. And at the conference, she wanted to talk to him, so she found an excuse to introduce herself. And after the session, he tracked her down, and they ended up having dinner together and talking all night long. They met in Washington, D.C. a few weeks later for a Valentine's Day date. And even before dinner, they gave each other thoughtful gifts. Kathy had made him a photo album of her favorite places in Chicago, and he gave her a box of chocolates with a note that said, Where to from here? I'm not certain, but I'm excited to find out if you are. After that, they started a long distance relationship. Kathy was in Chicago and Robert was in D.C. But they talked on the phone every night and saw each other three times a month.
1: And Kathy's parents and brother immigrated to the U.S. from Korea in 1971 when her mom was pregnant with her. But her childhood was a lot different than Robert's. She grew up in a Chicago suburb and went to a public school. And when Kathy was in junior high, she was actually diagnosed with lupus, which is a debilitating autoimmune disease. It's terrible. I have friends who have lupus. And when she told Robert that she had lupus, she was worried that, you know, he was going to end things. She actually expected that he was going to, but he didn't. He invited her instead to come with him and his parents on a month-long trip in China, which made her feel like their relationship was really going somewhere. She was surprised that he, you know, was so willing to look past this possible hurdle in their relationship and was so ready to be committed to her already. So she agreed to go on this trip. And by June, six months after they met, they were already talking about getting married. So things were moving pretty quick. And they actually got engaged on the day that they got back from China. Robert proposed and she was super excited and of course said yes. They got married on June 7th, 2003, and Kathy moved to the D.C. area with Robert. They bought a townhouse in Oakton, Virginia, a suburb of D.C. in 2004. Their lives were settled and they felt happy. But because she had lupus, giving birth was life-threatening for Kathy. So they talked about adopting a baby girl, possibly from China. In March of 2006, Robert's parents moved from Brooklyn to Northern Virginia to be closer to them. Robert had chosen to work for the firm Covington and Burling because the job allowed him to do a lot of pro bono work for members of the community, and he was all about giving back. By late summer of 2006, he was ready for a new challenge. So he applied for a job at Radio Free Asia, which is a nonprofit that broadcasts news and information to Asian countries. This position came with a huge pay cut for Robert, but Kathy was very supportive because she just wanted Robert to be happy and helping people made him happy. So at 32 years old, he started the next chapter of his career. He threw himself into the new job and immediately started studying international communications law to get ahead. He loved the work and he loved the staff. It was a perfect
0: fit for Robert. So on Wednesday, August 2nd, 2006, Robert was having dinner with a lawyer from Radio Free Europe and they went to a legal seminar. He then planned to go back to his office downtown to meet up with some of the night shift workers. And he knew that by the time he'd be heading home, it'd be so late, so he decided to just stay in DC rather than go all the way home. He asked a female friend first, but she was busy. So he decided to stay with his old college buddy, Joe Price, because Joe had a place near DuPont Circle where he knew he could crash. Joe was three years older, and they actually met when he gave Robert and his parents a tour of the college William & Mary in the mid-90s, when Robert was an incoming freshman and they hit it off right away. They were both involved in student government and Joe took Robert under his wing as kind of a mentor. They both also went to law school and through the years, they stayed very close with each other and with their small group of friends from the 13 Club from college. Joe had a very different lifestyle, however, from Robert. He lived with two men, Victor Zaborski and Dylan Ward. He was also in a committed relationship with Victor for over 10 years, and he likely had a sexual relationship with Dylan too. For the last four or so years, like Robert, Joe was a successful, highly ambitious lawyer who also gave a lot back to the community and did most of his advocacy work in the LGBTQ plus community. Joe was even interviewed by USA Today in 2004, where they were asking him about some of his unconventional life choices. Because again, this was 2004, so you know the world was a lot different for people of the LGBTQ plus community. It wasn't yeah. as widely accepted to be, you know, to have kids with a lesbian couple and raise them. With two gay men, I mean, at the time, I'm sure that was, you know, a little bit different than what people are used to.
1: It's crazy how far things have come in the last like 15 years. Yeah. And how far we still have to go. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. True that. But hey, progress is good. Mm -hmm.
0: It is. Joe also had a tenant in the house named Sarah Morgan, and she stayed in a separate basement apartment that had its own entrance. Joe's house, though, was a gathering place for friends and family, and he loved entertaining. So when Robert planned to stay the night there on August 2nd, it was no big deal. Joe welcomed the company. So Robert called Kathy around 9.30 that night to let her know he was staying at Joe's. He told her to have a good night and said, I love you, before they hung up.
1: So after he left the office, he went straight to Joe's house, which is at 1509 Swan Street. He got there around 10.30. Joe, Victor, and Dylan were all home at the time. And around midnight, just 90 minutes after he got there, Joe called his wife Kathy and told her that Robert was being taken to the hospital because he had been stabbed. Kathy was totally freaked out and she rushed to the George Washington University Hospital where Robert's parents and brother already were, but they were all too late. Robert was pronounced dead at 1225
0: a.m. So you went from a seemingly very normal night, you know, that there is no indications of. Somebody being stabbed to death to now Robert being dead. Yeah. In a matter of a few hours. Yep. Just visiting
1: an old friend from college.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot more around exactly what happened there, including the 911 call, which we'll get to mm-hmm. right after this first ad break.
1: Okay. So jumping right back into the case here, most of the circumstances around Robert's death are still completely unknown, which makes this case incredibly frustrating. It's really hard to even build a timeline here, but we thought the best place to start to kinda of give you a picture of kinda of what was going on is the nine one one call that was placed at eleven
2: forty nine PM. Uh, What's wrong, ma'am? We just uh, we had someone they was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know. We heard are they bleeding? You see someone yes. bleeding. Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where's they bleeding from? Uh I think he's I think in the stomach. In the stomach? Is he conscious? Uh, Calm down for me. I'm, I'm going to send some help, okay? Female or male? It's a male. He's a friend of ours. He's he spending the night with us. Okay. And who was the person that stabbed him? Do you know? Is, I he, is, is he conscious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, ma'am. listen no, to he's me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen, listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you, okay? Is he breathing? <sighs> I'm upstairs and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay, who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. I just went to the said, Okay, who's the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. Okay, who's the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody <laughs> with an intruder in the house. We heard a chime to door. <laughs> 15, ma'am, calm down, 1509 Swan Street Northwest. am I correct? Yes, it is. The person that says, is still in the home? I don't know. We have help en route. Thank you. They're here. <laughs> They are, they're en route to you now, Sending the police and the paramedics, okay, to assist. Okay, what I need you to do is go downstairs, okay? The place where, wherever he was stabbed at, I need you to get a dry cloth, okay? And just apply pressure to that area. If he was, wherever he was stabbed at on his body, I need you to take a towel downstairs while you're waiting for the paramedics to arrive and just apply pressure. Even if the rag or towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top, but never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. In the heart? Yes. The, the, so, the heart? Okay, is he breathing? He's breathing, but he needs help now. Okay, we have help in route, ma'am, okay? We do have help in route. Okay, just go down there and try to tell your husband or your other, um, the other half to just try to keep him calm and talk to him, Okay. Keep them calm and talk to them until someone gets there. Okay. And at the same time, get a dry cloth and just hold it right there in the area. My partner's holding the towel. Okay, and once it gets saturated with blood, tell them get another one. Go get another towel okay. so you can apply it on top of that one once it gets filled up with blood. Okay. We, need, well, we need you to apply pressure on that area. applying pressure. Right there. Okay, just hold it there until the paramedics get there. They should be pulling up any moment if they're already en route to your location. You don't know who did this. We have no idea who did this. I'm going to go down. Is this a private home or apartment? It's, it's a home. It's a home. at 1509 Swan Street, Northwest. The person had one of our, our knives. The person that stabbed him and ran out the door with a knife? I, I think so. Uh, okay, anybody get any type of description of the person that came in the home? I have no idea. We have no description. We heard we heard the chime, and and we heard the scream from our friends. Okay. And so we came running downstairs. We ran so, you both was upstairs and your friend was downstairs? Yes. You heard the door open and then you heard the scream? We didn't. I didn't hear the door open until after the scream, and then we ran down the stairs and we heard. We, are, we have an alarm, and so the chime went off. Okay. Is the ambulance. We really need the ambulance. Okay, they, in wrong, they, they are in wrong now, ma'am. Go to the door. They should be pulling up any moment, okay? I'm afraid to go gonna <laughs> okay, the person who's in this was the person that was assaulted. No, we're in the we're on the second floor. Okay. So somebody needs to go to open the door for the paramedics. You're not sure if that person's still in the home or not. I have no idea. Okay, we have paramedics in road, okay? What time is it? What time is it at the moment? Yes. Twenty three fifty four. It's eleven fifty four, ma'am. 1154. Yes. I mean I'll stay on the line with you. I will stay on the line until somebody gets here, okay? I won't hang up. We need them right now. I'm not hanging up but we need- I need help now. Okay, they're en route, ma'am. They are in route. <sighs> Let me know when you hear the paramedics. Can you look out the window and see if you hear them coming? I'm, I'm looking out the window and I see nothing. I see nobody. Okay, it seemed like forever, but they are in route, ma'am. They're coming. I here they are. Here they are. They're there. I'm going downstairs. Okay. I'll stand in line with you until you open the door for a paramedics. okay? Okay. <laughs> But we have someone with thrown on our second floor. Oh this. Man. No, <laughs> it's really an emergency. I mean, he's maybe. He's hurry. <laughs> Ma'am, we'll
1: be okay. <laughs> so this call was placed by Victor Zaborski. At 1149, like I said, and obviously the dispatcher thought that Victor was a woman during the call and misgendered him, um, but obviously he's too panicked to even correct her. He's out of breath. He's freaking out, explaining that someone has come in, stabbed their friend house guest, um, and they are not sure if this person could still be on the main level or not. So paramedics arrived onto the scene about six minutes after the call was placed. And let's just go over some of the things that were said in the call. I know it was long and some of you may not have listened to the whole thing. So Victor knew that Robert had been stabbed in the heart. It sounds like during the call, he said that Joe was holding a towel wound to stop the bleeding.
0: Right. And that to me was a little bit, you know, of a flag to me that he knew it was like in the heart that's kind of an odd thing to say i mean if somebody gets stabbed by an intruder or some random person how do you know it hit the heart you know I, unless he's just literally looking at joe holding the towel to his chest and that's just kind it of what be. came to his yeah. mind and that's why he said that but and it
1: could in that moment because yeah, you know that that's, that's there, true and, it's a, and you're trying a vital to, organ
0: trying to place the location i guess you would pick what's the closest organ to the right, area
1: right and obviously if he was stabbed in the heart or near the heart, even there'd be a ton of blood. And like the dispatcher said, she was just like, hold the towel. Don't even remove it. Put another one on top of it. Just continue holding the pressure. Um, But it's, it's very interesting because there was not as much blood as you may think at this scene. So he repeated that he had no idea who did this several times. They had no idea how the intruder got in. None of them saw the intruder. They were worried they still might be on the second floor. And by the end of the call, he was sobbing into the phone again. When the paramedics arrived, Victor was downstairs. As you could hear, he was still on the phone and he was wearing a white bathrobe like he had just gotten out of the shower. When they tried to ask him what was going on, looking for some direction of, you know, where to go and what to do, it seems like he kind of broke down at this point. Like he was pretty calm and collected ish, with the dispatcher up until a certain point. But then when they got there, it's like he couldn't even talk and he kind of just ignored them. They went upstairs and they found Dylan in the hallway also wearing a white robe. Both of them looked like they had just showered. So he also ignored them and didn't help give them any information about what had happened. He just went into his room and shut the door. Robert was in the guest room, lying on his back on a pullout sofa on top of the covers. He was wearing a gray t-shirt, a pair of gym shorts, and he had his night guard in because he was a big grinder. So he you know, always put it in right before going to sleep. Joe was sitting on the edge of the bed, and all he had on was a pair of white briefs. He also had looked like he had just showered. Mm.
0: At 12 o'clock, nearly 12 o'clock, they're showering.
1: Yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, you can shower at any time, but it is a little weird that all of them had just showered. Right, right. that's what I'm saying. Right after a murder, you know.
0: Yeah, a little strange. When an intruder's in your house, and he also, if you caught it, said they had an alarm. And they heard mm-hmm. the chimes on the alarms.
1: On the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like one of those little ding ding when you open the door, mm-hmm. garage door, like beep, beep. Yeah. yeah so
0: they didn't have it armed it sounds like uh-uh. otherwise an alarm would have actually gone off and you know police would have been there before the paramedics would have been there if there was an actual intruder in the house just mm-hmm. something i thought was interesting
1: yeah they also did have another roommate who was gone that night that's yeah and she, they thought that she could have been going of a little bit of what they yeah, said of you they said. of you know, was they thought it was just her, but anyway. So what's very strange is when paramedics first walked in, they noticed that Joe had not followed any of the instructions that they had given over the phone. Who knows if he was even told what to do. But he was just sitting there on the bed, not moving. He wasn't trying to help Robert in any way and was not holding pressure or applying pressure to his wounds at all. One of them asked what was going on and he answered, I heard a scream. And one of the paramedics checked on Joe to make sure he didn't have a weapon. Then he got up and just walked away the paramedics all noted how odd all of their behavior was yeah the paramedics focused on robert of course though because he had been stabbed in the chest three times once right through his heart but there was almost no blood at the scene
0: they also noticed that there was a knife on the bedside table that was covered in blood like smeared blood on the blade as well as a few drops of blood on the bed But what was interesting is that it looked like someone had thoroughly cleaned the crime scene, including washing Robert's body. And whoever did this then redressed Robert and placed him in the bed because his clothes were clean as well.
1: No way that they were worn by someone who was just stabbed. Yeah, And there's no way he was killed in this spot because his bed is this bed is completely clean.
0: Well, especially because one of the holes in his chest was big enough to put fingers into, but there was no blood because he had been wiped clean. So for this type of wound, I mean, you would expect to see just all sorts of blood, Mm -hmm. you know, all around him. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he's clean and dressed and then laid nicely into bed is very bizarre.
1: So obviously as police, well, you'd hope that they think that this crime scene has been tampered with because clearly it has anyone doesn't take it genius to realize this no especially Um, with a
0: stabbing i mean you look at most stabbings and there's blood everywhere
1: yeah definitely especially with this situation anything chest you know is going to have way more blood
0: when the police arrived at the crime scene they took joe victor and dylan in for questioning because obviously they want to talk to them they're very confused about what happened at the scene once they got back to the station they separated them and questioned them individually for hours and by the time the interrogations ended it was actually light out so it was the next morning but all three men told the exact same story they said an intruder broke in and stabbed robert
1: and you know what's interesting too is they never really wavered on their stories at all like they tried the whole tactic of telling yeah. s- telling them you know your friend caved already and told us the truth just fess up now and all of them were like no and stuck to their stories yeah. so that
0: they just heard robert scream or moaning and by the time they called 911 Whoever had broken into the house and killed Robert was long gone. So according to Joe and Dylan, they were in the kitchen with Robert when he first got there around 10.30 p.m. because obviously the the police want to try to come up with a timeline of what happened. And he had some water and they showed him to the guest room, which was all ready for him. Victor said he was alone in his room just watching TV. Dylan's bedroom was on the second floor with the guest room. And he said he took a sleeping pill around 11 and he heard Robert taking a shower before he fell asleep. Joe and Victor shared a bedroom on the third floor, and they went to bed around 11 as well. So sometime before 11.45, someone opened the back door, and Joe was woken up by the chiming sound the security system made when doors were opened. And he knew Sarah had planned to be out that night, so he just assumed that Sarah was just coming home early. About 10 minutes later, Victor and Joe heard two distinct sounds. They weren't loud screams, but more like low guttural moans. They then went downstairs to check and saw that the guest room door was open, and obviously they found that Robert had been stabbed and he was lying on the bed with a knife on top of him. Joe then put the knife on the side table and tried to help Robert. Joe made a point to mention to police that his fingerprints would be on the knife because he moved it, but they probably wouldn't find the killer's fingerprints because he would have worn gloves, hmm. That's kind of an interesting thing to say, don't you think?
1: That is like, where Set does that, that up come perfectly,
0: from? Like, oh yeah, my fingerprints will be on there. Cause I just moved the knife.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, why would you say that? It's almost like you're over. You're like, you're mm-hmm. trying too hard to be like, I'm innocent. Yeah. Like, they're gonna yourself, show up, but like yeah. that's cause I just touched it. Yeah, definitely. And then to be like, oh, and the person probably had on gloves. So like, right. you're not going to find shit, you know, cause they probably had gloves. And how do we, how would you even know that? Right. You know, and what, why did would you see you, them? Why would that be in your mind? Like, if you really did, had no idea you were totally caught off guard, like I feel like you'd be so panicked, you wouldn't be thinking like, Oh, mm-hmm. the person probably had gloves and my DNA is going to be on it. Cause I was ho- like, yeah, going exactly. That's
0: defense mode. Mm-hmm. That's somebody thinking, Oh no, they're going to think that I did it because I moved the knife.
1: Well, Hey, these guys are familiar with the world of law. So right. Perfect exactly. people to carry something like this out. Exactly.
0: And when Victor saw what was happening, he screamed, which woke up Dylan at 1149. That's when Victor called 911. Joe and Victor claimed that they were together in their bedroom at the time of the murder, but neither of them could provide an official alibi for Dylan who was alone in his room. And that's pretty much all any of them would say, but there's obviously a lot more questions. Forensic experts concluded that the knife found next to the bed wasn't the murder weapon, It had Robert's blood on it from the tip of the blade to the handle, but it was too long for the wounds that he had. It had a five and a half inch blade, and his wounds were all four to five inches deep. Additionally, there was a large white towel on the floor of the guest room that had several spots of blood on it. There were fibers on the knife that matched the towel, but no fibers from Robert's t-shirt. The blood pattern on the knife was consistent with someone wiping it with a bloody towel, and the blood pattern on the towel matched that pattern. Mm. This knife came from a cutlery set in the kitchen, and there was a knife missing from the set in Dylan's room that was the right size for the murder weapon. However, the murder weapon has never been recovered. Only a single vial of blood was recovered from the scene from the two small spots on the bed, and Robert's body had been washed and dressed, and the sheets were changed, and all the blood was cleaned up from the room. Hmm, very weird. Victor told police that when he found Robert, he lifted up his shirt and saw a lot of blood on his stomach. And when the paramedics got there, his t-shirt was down and his t-shirt and stomach were clean. Victor also told the 911 operator someone was applying pressure to Robert's wound, which would have caused a lot of blood. But all they found was the white towel with a few splotches of blood. There was no other bloody towels, rags, or clothes anywhere in the house. That makes
1: absolutely no sense. So that would
0: imply that if an intruder broke in and did this, they literally took all of the bloody clothes, redressed, wiped Robert down before yep. leaving,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then you have and took nothing. Yeah, and for to, what? Yeah, exactly.
1: They had plenty of opportunity to steal things too, which we'll go over that.
0: But. And who's coming after Robert? Robert's like the nicest guy, right? What enemies does Robert He doesn't does have many
1: enemies, have? unless there was you know things that we didn't know about him, of course. Or but there's always what that? are the chances?
0: Yeah, and I mean there's always that teeny tiny chance of just a random home break in yeah. on the night that Robert happens to be there and. It was they a serial killer just that likes want to, to kill him for yeah. no
1: apparent reason.
0: And the serial killer likes to take the bloody clothes of the victim with him.
1: Yeah. And when you hear the rest of the evidence, I mean, that po- that doesn't even seem like a possibility, honestly.
0: No. The two paramedics expected to step into a chaotic, bloody scene, but it was actually calm. And both of these paramedics had 10 and 15 years of experience on the job, and they had never seen a crime scene like this before. And they immediately when they came in had a very strange feeling that something was very wrong because nothing was displaced in the room. There hadn't been a struggle. Nothing was stolen. Robert's expensive watch and Blackberry were right there on the bed. So robbery obviously wasn't the motive for whoever this intruder was. The first police officer to actually interview Joe at the house was Diane Durham. But the story he told her was different from what he told detectives later. He told Diane when they heard the alarm, they found Robert outside the back door on the patio bleeding. And that's when they then took him upstairs to the guest room to lie him down and then called 911. So that was his original version of events, according to the police officer that I talked to at the scene. But at the station, his story changed and he never went back to this original version of what happened that night. Kathy didn't get home from the hospital until 4 a.m. And around 7 a.m., she called Jason Torchinski, a close friend of Robert's and part of the tight-knit group from William & Mary. And she asked Jason to call the others to let them know Robert. Was dead. On Friday, August 4th, Joe, Victor, and Dylan came over to talk to Kathy, and she spent half an hour alone with them to find out what had happened to Robert. And again, they told her the same vague story that they told the police. Kathy then met with a detective the next day, and she asked Jason to come along with her, as he was a lawyer and a former federal prosecutor. Joe called Jason the next day and said his lawyer wanted to know what Kathy told the cops about the conversation she had had with them. But Jason needed Kathy's permission to say anything since he was acting as her attorney. And after he hung up, he realized how shocking it was that Joe would ask about Kathy's conversation with the police. And he couldn't think of a reason why Joe would want to know Mm -hmm. unless he was trying to cover for something. Sloppy. Another lawyer friend told Jason that he had to find Kathy another lawyer. Jason was family to Robert, and he couldn't be involved in this from the legal side. That friend told Jason to contact Covington and Burling, the real estate practice where Robert worked for six years before getting the job at Radio Free Asia. So Jason talked to his former boss, who connected him with Eric Holder, and Eric agreed to represent the case free of charge. And Eric Holder is a big deal. Not only was he on D.C. Superior Court from 1988 to 1993, he also stepped down to work as U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia under the Clinton administration, and in 1997, He served as deputy attorney general under Clinton as well. And he actually served as attorney general under President Obama as well later on. But in 2001, he left government work for private practice and took a job at Covington and Burling. Jason met with Eric that Monday to discuss the details of the case and what they knew so far.
1: So Robert's funeral was the next day and it was packed because he had so many friends and relationships, you know, just throughout his life and all of these people wanted to come and get a chance to say goodbye to Robert,
0: which doesn't surprise me at all that, Mm -mm. you know, his funeral be packed.
1: Yeah. It's just one of those people. Some of his friends from William and Mary comforted Joe thinking about how horrible it must've been for him to find Robert laying there dying in his home. But those who knew more about the case and about Joe didn't actually buy the intruder story for a second. The police suspected Joe too. And they suspected Dylan and Victor. Like we said, it's a pretty obvious situation to roll up on. Yeah. All showered in their robes. Like, come on. Yeah.
0: No blood anywhere. Yeah. It's really cleaned. Fucking weird.
1: But according to their intruder story, a random person would have had to climb over Joe's seven foot high security fence, come through their unlocked back door. Then they would go to the second floor of the house, walk past Dylan's bedroom, and eventually went into the guest room to stab Robert. The intruder would then have washed and redressed Robert, cleaned the room and the bed and left without anyone seeing him. And this all would have had to happen in about 45 minutes. So Mm. sounds very, very unlikely.
0: Yeah. Seven foot high security fence. And like, yeah, nobody saw you. Mm. Nothing. No, no witnesses. Hmm. That seems unlikely.
1: And this version of events doesn't fit with the low moaning sounds that the men said that they heard. Assuming Robert had made those noises while being attacked, there was no time for the killer to clean up before other people in the house rushed to the room to see what was going
0: on. That's what's crazy to me, is how does somebody pull all this off without alerting anybody else in that house, including somebody else on the same floor as you?
1: And they came as soon as they heard the noises. So what, the noises were just at the end?
0: And to do a stabbing the way that it was done, like to the chest three times that, you know, like that's going to, somebody's going to scream through that. Yeah. You know, like if you were going to be like the silent assassin, that's going to sneak in and like assassinate somebody. Yeah. Go for like a quick kill, like a throat or something like Mm. that. So it just seems very, very unlikely that it went down the way that they said it did.
1: Yeah. And there were about 10 minutes between the time that the security system, like kind of chimed to when that actual moaning sounds were taking place according to them yeah so there was a lot of time in there that they should have heard more sounds essentially and they didn't until the very end doesn't Mm. really make any sense
0: yeah very weird and even investigators said that they found dust and cobwebs in parts of the house that the killer supposedly walked through according to the men Hmm.
1: there'd be way more if there's a lot of dust in this house there'd be some footprints or something yeah
0: it'd be it'd be questionable because there'd be some sort of activity going through these areas you know So before we get farther into the investigation, as well as the interrogation of these three men, we're going to go and take one more ad break and we'll be right back.
1: So one thing that investigators noted when interrogating the three men is that they kept bringing up their sexuality. They kept reminding them that they were gay, but that Robert was straight, somehow implying that this might have had something to do with his murder, which they couldn't really quite connect the dots on this. They also got the best defense attorneys in DC all who had handled high profile criminal cases and got their clients fully exonerated. They refused to talk to police again after this and everything went through their lawyers.
0: I mean that's definitely sus right there. Yeah. <laughs> to get to go out and get like the most expensive like mm, criminal defense attorneys right? like I don't like that that definitely puts some guilt on you I feel like when you do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, especially from a law enforcement perspective, I mean, mm-hmm. definitely raises the suspicion level quite a bit.
1: For sure. So the police got a search warrant for Joe's home, of course, and sent a full FBI forensic team. And they searched every square inch of this house and copied the computer hard drives. And they also removed sections of the walls and staircases. So they had pretty thorough search. Yeah, there. pretty thorough. That fall, the 13 Club organized a memorial for Robert on the William and Mary campus. His family asked that Joe and Victor do not attend, so you can definitely tell what they were feeling already at this point. They seemed to understand this, though, and Joe and Victor stayed far away from them. Their lives had pretty much gone back to normal, though, fairly quickly after this all happened. But his wife, Kathy, was not doing well at all. Her life had been completely shattered. You know, she had seen her whole future with Robert. She loved him so much, and it was all gone just like that. And she had no answers as to what actually happened to him, just that he was stabbed by some intruder, which I'm sure she didn't really believe. So she felt like she couldn't stay in her home without Robert just financially. And it's, you know, hard to stay in this house that you'd shared with your partner who is now murdered. So she didn't really care if the bank foreclosed on their house. She had become severely depressed and barely able to function. Just getting out of bed was a huge struggle for her. So she ended up moving into one of her friends' house and started living with them. And around the time of the memorial service at William & Mary, she started seeing a Christian grief counselor, and by November, she was able to start working part-time at the American Health Lawyers Association. It was hard for her to get back into the swing of things, but luckily, her boss was extremely accommodating and let her show up and work when she was able to function. The friends that she was staying with had three young boys who called her Aunt Kathy. So being around them did make her feel a little better. The bank never foreclosed on their house, luckily. So she ended up moving back in in the spring with her newly adopted dog, Buddy.
0: And meanwhile, the investigation made almost no progress. Joe, Victor and Dylan gave DNA samples, including hair and fingerprints. And still detectives hadn't made any public statements about this case. A year after the murder on August 6th, 2007, Eric Holder called a press conference for Kathy to make a statement. And when she did, Kathy spoke directly to the killer. She said she grieved for them, for the loss of their life as they try to live with a murder on their conscience. She urged them to confess to free themselves from this burden.
1: That's powerful. I've never really heard it put that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, i I'm, that's honestly like one of the best things you could mm-hmm. say. Totally. Eric spoke about the tragedy that this case was and that it hadn't been solved yet. And he talked directly to Joe, Victor, and Dylan, asking them to come forward with any other information they had. Because clearly, they probably had more information than they were leading yeah, on. Yeah,
1: they were the ones in the house that night. Mm-hmm. How disgusting you only for them to be silent. have a few so things obvious. to
0: say. Yeah. Ugh. The autopsy gave investigators more clues about what happened that night. They found out that Robert had indeed been stabbed three times, twice in the chest, and once in the stomach and the wounds were identical. They were the same depth, about four to five inches deep, and were all at the same diagonal, which is very interesting. And if he wasn't already unconscious, these wounds would have rendered him unconscious almost immediately, but it still would have taken him a while to bleed out and die. Robert also had needle marks all over his body. He had multiple marks on the left side of his neck, three in the center of his chest, and one on the back of his left hand, as well as two on his right foot. When they ran the toxicology report, they didn't find any drugs in his system, though. So it's hard to explain what the needles were for. I mean, it's possible that if it was some type of sedative that they administered through needles, that mm-hmm. it was just out of his system by that time and didn't show up on the toxicology report. But maybe you know,
1: ketamine. I've heard that that can leave your system fairly quickly.
0: Yeah, it could. It could be something that your body just metabolizes really quickly and mm. you know flushes out of your system. So. It's, it's hard to say.
1: You know more about that comment below because I'm curious.
0: Yeah, yeah. He also had blood vessels that burst in his eyes, which pointed yeah. to the possibility that he was smothered with something like a pillow. And just a, a word of caution for this next part here. It is a bit graphic and might be triggering to some. But they did find during his autopsy that there was semen on multiple parts of his body, including on and around his genitals, including his anus and inside his rectum. This evidence led investigators to believe there had been a sexual assault. And the only way for this to happen was by using a sex toy. And it implied that someone had done this to him against his will, likely while he was unconscious. Robert had never shown any interest in men in a sexual way. And obviously he was happily married to Kathy. So detectives were confident that he was straight. He didn't have any defensive wounds to imply a struggle and there was no trace of blood on his hands or under his fingernails which meant he was most likely unconscious when he was stabbed. He didn't have any marks or injuries to imply he'd been restrained either. The only blood in the room was two small spots on the bed and a few drops on the towel, and again, just a little bit of blood on the knife. They actually used cadaver dogs during the search of Joe's home to look for more blood. They led investigators to a lint trap of a dryer outside Dylan's room, as well as to a drain in the courtyard in the back of the house the drain cover was actually askew like it had been recently taken off and put back on, which this led investigators to believe that someone had washed bloody clothes, towels, and sheets in the outside drain and then dried these items in the dryer. However, there were no clothes in the dryer during the search and investigators couldn't verify that it was Robert's blood in the lint trap or the drain. Also during the search, the dogs actually detected ecstasy and this was in a cabinet in Dylan's room, as well as in a dresser in Joe and Victor's room. But again, there still wasn't enough evidence to charge anyone in Robert's murder. Glenn Kirshner, the lead prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Homicide Section, took over the case in February 2007, and his goal was to get one of the three suspects to talk. But by this time, Joe had sold the house where Robert was murdered for 1.47 million, and then him and Victor bought a house in Miami But we're still living in an apartment in D.C. as well.
1: On October 27th, 2008, investigators got an arrest warrant for 38-year-old Dylan Ward. He was arrested two days later in Florida and charged with obstruction of justice. According to the affidavit, detectives do believe that Robert had been injected with some type of paralytic drug. Then he was sexually assaulted, probably smothered, and stabbed. So their theory was that Dylan had broken into Robert's room incapacitated him in some way, and then raped him using sex toys. And then Victor and Joe helped cover up the murder, helped cover up the crime scene, and have been covering up the crime ever since. They believe that the men had waited somewhere between 19 and 49 minutes before calling 911 after stabbing Robert. So Joe lives in a townhouse, so they share a wall with a neighbor. And this neighbor actually heard a scream come out of their side of the house at 11 o'clock while watching the 11 o'clock news, so sometime around 11. This was likely Victor's scream. And it was likely when he saw Robert bleeding in the guest room. This means that the scream could have happened anywhere between 11 and 1130, but Victor didn't call 911 until 1149, leaving 19 to 49 minutes between the time that they found Robert and the time that they called for help. And the affidavit for Dylan's arrest included a detailed description of all the physical evidence and a description of the men's relationships. It also said that the men were in a three-way relationship with Joe at the center. Joe and Victor were life partners, and Dylan and Joe had a dominant submissive sexual relationship with Dylan in the dominant role. And when investigators searched Dylan's room, they found things like metal and leather collars, penis rings and vices, studded penis bindings, racks, shackles, and an electric shock device. Pretty intense. Also, some BDSM books about pain and sexual pleasure, multiple passages in the book were actually highlighted. And this was something they were quite into, which of course, if you're a consenting adult, that's totally cool. But it does—it it is interesting in a true crime case and adds a different element to things. So this electric shock device, I looked into it a little bit more and it's pretty scary looking. It almost looks like a torture device to me i wouldn't strap it on myself but i guess they're pretty common and people use them to create an in uh ejaculation yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so this could have been something that was used on him against his will
0: right because if he's unconscious how are you ejaculating Mm -hmm. then without the help of some sort of device like that Mm -hmm. that basically makes it happen for you
1: which, of course, we don't know a lot of the details. We don't know if he was conscious or yeah, not. Yeah, that's
0: true. But it's important that you say that because that this is a yeah. kind of a big thing. It's
1: but, a big detail in this case.
0: It is. What's also interesting is that while Dylan was in jail, he never changed his story. Joe and Victor were brought in and told they'd be arrested too if they didn't start talking. But yet, they still stuck to the same story. Detectives got warrants for the arrest on obstruction of justice charges in November 2008 and they turned themselves in and were almost immediately released on bond. Dylan was freed less than a month after his arrest. The three men, though, had to follow strict curfews and wear electronic monitoring devices while awaiting trial. In December, they received an additional charge for conspiracy, and during the hearing, the judge lifted the curfew as well as electronic monitoring requirements. And then, in April 2009, new evidence was released by prosecutors. Two emails were drafted on Roberts Blackberry the night of the murder. One of the email drafts was saved at 11.05pm and it was to Kathy and he said he had showered and was going to bed and it's likely that Robert was interrupted before he was actually able to send this email. The defense used this evidence to dispute the prosecutor's claim that Robert had been tortured for at least an hour before he was killed, even though they knew that he was writing an email at 11.05. And here's actually a quick clip of the defense attorney actually explaining this. Issue. What What kind of a problem is this for your
3: case? It's a major problem, and the government will say it's a major problem for them, but it's more of a problem for us because it's critical in any homicide case uh, when the time of death is. The government maintains that the time of death early on in this case, that they said the time of death was, was earlier in this case, and in fact, they maintain that the victim was uh, suffocated, tortured, and abused for at least an hour, perhaps more. We now find out five days ago, after two and a half years of investigation, that the government was in possession of a BlackBerry that showed two emails going out, one at 11.05, one at 11.07, guess the jury's out, so to speak, on whether those emails went out, but we just found out about this five days ago. We could be in a position of no harm, no foul, if they had the BlackBerry, and we could recreate everything, but it was sent to the Secret Service to be imaged, and it was never imaged, Then it was returned to Mr. Wallen's wife. She then returned it to his employer, and now it's gone. And, and what do you call the fact that it was never imaged? I mean, how do you feel about it? Yeah. Um, probably words that your viewers don't want to hear. Yeah. So uh, not helpful. Uh, for not sure. helpful is a good start.
1: So after this, the affidavit for Dylan's arrest was released to the public, and Robert's friends were horrified to learn all the details of the crime. Kathy said that reading it was like experiencing his death all over again. I honestly cannot imagine going through that with you. Yeah. Like reading over details. Oh, it's just horrible. Something no one should have to go through. I
0: mean, just to like start hearing, you know, hearing words and then having your brain like translate that into images into your head. is like got to be
1: like, how do you not? most
0: Difficult thing. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you're getting such specific details Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. what potentially happens.
1: I don't think I could do it.
0: Yeah, it'd be really, really tough.
1: So, their friends were kind of split. Some people still believed Joe's story and thought that he was innocent until they read the affidavit. There were too many holes in the story and too many unanswered questions. Kathy's lawyers used the affidavit to build a civil case against Victor, Joe, and Dylan. The lawyers for the three men dismissed the detectives' theories and said that everything in the affidavit was purely speculation or inflammatory comments about their lifestyle. On November 25th, 2008, Kathy filed a $20 million wrongful death lawsuit against all three of them, and the lawsuit accused the men of destroying evidence, conspiring to cover up how Robert died, and wasting time cleaning up and getting their story straight instead of calling 911. During those crucial moments, obviously, it's important you call 911 right away. And clearly, they just let Robert lay there and die if there was possibly a chance that they could have saved him. So, this was settled out of court in August of 2011 for an undisclosed amount. On June 17th, 2010, Joe, Victor, and Dylan all went to trial for charges of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and tampering with evidence. They opted to have their cases decided by a judge instead of a jury of their peers none of them testified
0: of course not they're like
4: let's let's just get nope. this done and no nope. you know.
0: cowards
1: and this will not be heard by a jury as well
4: That's also a pretty bold move that the defense has made in this case. I think because of the amount of pretrial publicity in this case, much of it which contains uh, misinformation, rather, put out by the U.S. Attorney's Office early in the case, I think the defense attorneys felt like they couldn't find a jury in D.C. that hadn't already made up their minds in a case like this.
2: Um,
1: Is this unusual to see the, the holdout for this long? They simply have not told investigators if they know anything more.
4: Well, I think they have fully cooperated. In fact, all three of the defendants in this case were interviewed for hours upon hours separately uh, the night of the incident. Um, now, while the three of them are housemates together, they were not housemates with Robert Wone. Uh, but Robert Wone was a longtime friend of Mr. Price and was friends with all three of the housemates. Uh, there really is no motive that they would have either uh, to kill Mr. Wone or to cover up uh, if, if someone else did it. Uh, they've said right from the start that it was an intruder that did this.
1: And then you guys are not going to believe this, but on June 29th, a judge ended up finding them all not guilty. She believed that they knew who killed Robert, but that prosecutors failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they were guilty of the crimes they were being charged with.
0: That's just crazy. I mean, unbelievable. Then, then who? Like Talk they? About unjust. Then they're just covering up for somebody, and they didn't get charged with that. Like. I don't, how does that make any sense? It seems like the it re, the judge really went with that the prosecutors weren't able to, you know, prove mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt that it was them.
1: Well, there was a major failure with the prosecution side, as well as, you know, these guys did have really good right. lawyers and a lot of money to work. Yeah,
0: with, that's very true. Sadly.
1: So the prosecution was accused of basically ignoring this case for months at a time and making crucial mistakes early on. When the suspects were initially interrogated, several hours of questioning weren't videotaped. That always just blows me away. Like, wouldn't it be a priority, you know, in a murder investigation? But, you know, and then get this. They found out that while searching for biological evidence at Joe's house, a common Mm -hmm. chemical that is used in investigations was used incorrectly, and it actually completely ruined a bunch of evidence, and it could not be used in court.
0: Yeah, that's... That's always terrible when that happens when yeah. it's just some somebody just doesn't know how to do their job. Like and then what? as a it's result, your job. major evidence is then thrown out of court because major of evidence. Mistake. I
1: mean, who even knows what, I mean, some, someone knows, we don't know what exactly was thrown out, but
0: yeah, something that crucial is infuriating.
1: Clearly. I'd be so mad God. if I were so
0: many cases like that Kathy.
1: too. Oh my God. So Robert's blackberry wasn't tested for fingerprints either and the Secret Service didn't get any other information from it before giving it back to Robert's employer. It was just recycled back into service. That's crazy. They literally sent it off for someone else to go use it as their phone.
0: Yeah.
1: What the fuck? Yeah. There was also a 10-day gap between the time that detectives received a search warrant for the suspect's car and executing the actual warrant. 10 days. That's insane. For what? Mm Mm-hmm. So obviously that gives them plenty of time to dispose of any evidence, clean the car, you know, whatever they got to do. They have plenty of time while the police are just doing who knows what. The toxicology report was also missing several drugs that could have been used to incapacitate Robert. The medical examiner also kept three cubic centimeters of Robert's blood, which is a very small amount. So no further testing can be done because all they have is that tiny sample.
0: That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all Yeah, and, and we've heard that before too where they don't take enough either dna or blood when they have a specimen that they could get mm-hmm. more from and then they just end up not being able to retest because like oh well we don't have enough of the sample in order to run further testing because most times when it comes to investigating you know a crime mm-hmm. scene forensically yeah. you've got to go back and retest things you mm-hmm. need to or you want to retest things later on and You, you would know. think
1: they'd save as much as possible, like more right. than enough nope. in any murder, possible murder.
0: Yeah, seriously.
1: So a lot of people feel that the mistakes and lack of motivation to move the case forward have been basically due to prejudice against Robert because he was an Asian American and the other three suspects are white. Many people believe that if the races were reversed, that it would have been much more thorough and intense. And maybe more people would have heard about it as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's definitely truth to that. And I mean obviously the fact that the three suspects had amazing lawyers, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. taught the best of the best. I know. To protect them.
1: Ugh, so sick that the world is set up that way. Yeah. It's but it is.
0: I know, I know. It's crazy. If
1: you have the money, you can get out of a like some of get the away worst murder. situations. I mean, this is such an obvious murder here. Yeah. This makes no sense.
0: Investigators also didn't spend much time if any investigating the possibility that there really was an intruder who murdered Robert, which that's that's how I feel too. Yeah. Like why even waste your time on that theory when it's right there in front of you?
1: Well, there's no evidence for it. They didn't take anything. I mean, there's no sign of forced right. entry. Right. Like why would you waste your time?
0: Yeah, it would have been very difficult if not impossible for somebody to pull this off mm-hmm. who was just a random intruder. Yep. Investigators believe Dylan was the killer and Victor and Joe helped cover it up. Some media outlets reported that Dylan had a fetish for Asian men, implying that he may have become obsessed with Robert. Any one of the three men could have been the killer or they could have worked together. If it was some sort of sex game gone wrong, whether or not Robert was a willing participant, they may have accidentally killed him and panicked. Mm -hmm. So that would have then led them to clean up the crime scene and get their story straight before calling 911. The plan, though, might have been to incapacitate Robert and make sure he was unconscious before sexually assaulting him. Then he woke up at some point during the assault and was killed to keep him quiet. If this happened, it might not have been the first time he was assaulted while unconscious. Since the night they were interrogated by detectives, Joe, Victor, and Dylan have maintained their innocence and the details of their story have never changed. During the trial, prosecutors introduced the theory that Michael Price, Joe's younger brother, may have been the killer and the three men were covering for him. They didn't present any evidence though to back this up except that he was allegedly gay and had a criminal record as well as a history of drug use and violence toward his partners some people have even speculated that the killer was just like a professional hitman which how often does that happen mm-hmm. i mean that's right. very rare that something like that happens unless you're involved.
1: and why yeah why? like robert was such a great guy right, right what would be the motive like yeah there well, just is none
0: no Because of the short timeline between Robert going to bed and the 911 call, an intruder would have to be skilled, highly skilled, and organized professional to assault and kill Robert, as well as clean up the crime scene in such a short amount of time. And even then, it's a stretch. Robert spent time working in government and was closely linked to several high-level government officials. So one theory is that he may have made some enemies in that work, or maybe he was involved in some kind of top-secret government work that got him into trouble, again, the evidence doesn't point towards that at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, if it was a situation like that, I highly, de- I mean, the why would crime you stab scene, somebody? Yeah. And I mean, and it doesn't, and stage them, wash them off, reclothe them, yeah. put them in the bed. I mean, no, no that is not any type of secret. And I feel like that would have been in and out hitman type of situation, probably a gun
0: or disappeared, abducted yeah. and gone. Something banished. like that. Yeah. yeah.
1: This definitely does not align with that.
0: And then this leads us to the absolutely craziest part is that no one has ever been charged for Robert's murder and investigators don't seem to be any closer to an answer. And any theories that are out there at this point are just nothing more than guesses. It's likely that for this case to be solved though, the killer or someone covering for the killer will need to come forward mm-hmm. and confess. I mean, and that's where it, where it's at. I mean, it's still, still unsolved. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately I think, it's probably going to stay that way unless somebody does decide, you know what? I need to come come clean. clean. I can't have this on my conscience anymore. And I need to just tell the truth.
1: I don't know how they, any of them that were in the house that night live with this. Yeah. And I
0: mean, my, my feeling from that 911 call with, with Victor was I got sketchy vibes from it. I could just, you can just tell from the the way that he, you know, he's panicked when he needs to, but then calm Mm -hmm. in between, especially Mm -hmm. when he gets back around Joe And then, you know, as soon as the paramedics arrive, he just like starts sobbing. Exactly. I was
1: thinking about that, too, and trying to put myself in his shoes. Like, would I maybe have fallen apart once I saw paramedics? Maybe it would really hit you at that moment. I mean, just to give him the benefit of the doubt as far as the call goes. It is hard to judge a call, but I agree with you. I did get the same just type of feeling. It felt like it felt like acting.
0: Yeah, it really did.
1: It really did.
0: And then the fact that, you know, they all skipped town. Sell the house <laughs> as soon as they can. Yeah, and skip town.
1: Yep, and I—I I mean, I think the d- that device at the end like tells you a lot. Yeah, you know the fact that it was there, the fact that there was sperm found. Yeah, you know, yeah, on clearly river, something. Him. Yeah. And there's
0: no indications that he was like you know gay or like secretly gay or something. Which or he like could living have this been. Double life, which, yeah, there's a possibility. Maybe he been.
1: was, but he was just like emailing his wife and.
0: Just was staying there because he happened to be mm-hmm. it happened to be close to where he was working at, and
1: I guess there's no way to prove whether he was participating willingly or not.
0: And his BlackBerry's long gone now. But been,
1: I think it's really important to just understand that this device is you; it can be used on people who aren't participating, yeah, not willingly yeah. participate, not right. consenting.
0: And there was there was something that came out uh, during discovery of Dylan looking at uh, kind of like torture porn and things mm-hmm, like that. So. Mm-hmm. It's very possible that that yeah. this is in fact what happened. To Robert. I
1: think it's pretty damn obvious what yeah. happened, and this is a major. They've got money
0: and lawyers and injustice. Immediately lawyered up, mm-hmm. or didn't say anything. yeah It just shows you that if you you know if you stick to your story, Ugh. and you have strong lawyers. I mean, God That's can literally sad. get away with murder. That's crazy. But then especially again,
1: especially with that sloppy as they were. Yeah, but, but at the same time, as clean they right. cleaned they were it all super up. Clean. But it was like so obvious at the same time. Yeah, kind of stupid.
0: It's it's just a wild case because mm-hmm. it's I feel like it's very rare for things to play out like this in the way that it did. And you know, when it's so clear to everybody mm-hmm. involved, including investigators, that these three men were the you know somehow involved in his murder. We don't know who the killer was, but like, yeah, literally all the pieces are there to fall in place for it to to happen. But oh, yet. What's so
1: frustrating is that we just don't we have no idea what could have even happened because clearly he would we don't even know where he was killed. Clearly, it wasn't the bed, right? Yeah. We know that yeah. there would be way more blood if he was killed there.
0: Yeah. Well, what's so, clear to me is those three know way more. Oh, yeah. Than they have ever said. Definitely. So I think everyone can agree. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they're able to get more evidence or somehow, you know, get a confession out of one of them at some point And we'll get the truth about mm-hmm. what really happened to Robert. Yeah. for his family's sake. I mean, for his poor wife mm-hmm. that had this happen to her. Yeah. So,
1: it's terrible. It's terrible.
0: So, yeah, let us know what you guys think about this case. We'd be really we'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a really really wild and bizarre one.
1: Yeah, there's uh, a lot of information out there. Of course, we couldn't include everything in our show as YouTube, you know. They like yeah, to us. Yeah, there's fly a lot us. more, <laughs> yeah, there's
0: a lot more graphic details to this that mm-hmm. we weren't able to to include, but mm-hmm. But I mean, for the most part, I think it's pretty clear cut what happened and definitely sad that no justice has been served.
1: I mean, if you disagree and you think the guys are innocent and there really was an intruder, let us know.
4: Yeah, let us know your your other
0: theories for sure. But we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Uh, Hopefully you found this episode of the podcast interesting as much as we did. And make sure you're subscribed to us on YouTube and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Also, ratings and reviews really help us out on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't left us a rating review, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show, but that is it for us today. And we will that be back next week with another amazing episode. Amazing. Episode. Amazing. episode. <laughs> but until next time,
1: always keep taking your mind up. Mile higher. high.